invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, first of all, to Revelation chapter 4. I want to read the entire chapter. The superscription over mine in my Bible says, The throne room of heaven. We're going to peer into the throne room of heaven. Revelation chapter 4. You remember that this chapter was written by John, the Apostle John, who was banished to the Isle of Patmos for the sake of his faith. And uh, while he is there, God lifts that curtain separating heaven and earth just a little bit and gives John a vision. And he writes what he has been given to see. Listen with me to the word of God. This is God's word. Revelation 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, I, then John, after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they did not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Words of our text this morning I take from Isaiah chapter uh, 6. Isaiah chapter 6, if you will turn to that with me. Isaiah chapter 6. <clears throat> I'm going to read the first four verses. <clears throat> but our text is actually taken from verse 2. But I'm going to read the first four verses. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning to read in verse 1. We continue to hear God's own word. In the year that King Isaiah died, I, now we're speaking Isaiah... I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. I want that's far, and our text for this morning actually is framed in verse 2. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to one another and said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
the whole earth is full of his glory. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, gathered with me here on this New Year's morning in Salem. For the next several days, you will undoubtedly hear many people wishing you a blessed New Year. And in, in fact, you will wish many others the same. And if you stop to think about that for a moment, then it has to strike you that any blessing ultimately can only come from above. That's not to say that it is inappropriate to wish each other a blessed new year, but we understand, of course, that we cannot bless one another. Only God can do that. When we wish one another a blessed new year, what we're actually saying is that it is our prayer, our hope, that God would grant his blessing to one another in the coming year. But what must then be immediately understood as well is that we can only expect God's blessing upon us in 2024 when we walk before his face in obedient service. And it is now to that end that we've gathered ourselves together this morning to greet a new year. Along with the entire world, we welcome a new year. And along with the world, what this new year holds for us is hidden within the secret counsel of God. Will the new year be weal or woe for us? We do not know. Will it be golden days or weary ways? We just don't know. But in distinction from the world, the Christian and the Christian church is blessed to know that all things in this coming year must work together for our eternal blessing in salvation. Within that framework, we as Church of Jesus Christ optimistically enter into this new year. <clears throat> and so we listen to God's word this New Year's morning using as our theme the angels as our heavenly example. That's my theme, the angels as our heavenly example. We want to examine Isaiah's vision of the angels, and we will first of all interpret the meaning of the vision, and then we want to make application of the vision as it applies to us in this coming year. So the heavenly angels, the angels as our heavenly example, and then we want to interpret the meaning of Isaiah's vision, and we want to make application of his vision as it applies to us in this coming year of our Lord. Congregation it is very likely that many people, maybe even among us, will begin this year with all kinds of resolutions to resolutions to do better this coming year than they did in the last. It's also true that in many cases most of these resolutions will soon be broken. That ought not to surprise us. If it was also your resolve to improve yourself this year, for the most part you will only be disappointed that once again for for man, apart from the grace of God and apart from God's blessing, is not qualified to improve himself. On the other hand, it is also unbiblical for us to reason that God grants us blessing in the hope that we would use those blessings for his glory and honor. No, according to our Bibles, God calls us in 2024 and every day to holy, sanctified living. And we must know that he himself has prepared the good works that we should walk in them. And so consequently, our posture throughout all of this coming year and beyond must be to cry out with the psalmist, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? But when we then ask the prior question of how, meaning that how will it be possible for us to do the Lord's will, then scripture points us the way to a heavenly example 
In fact, Christ himself points us the way. He has taught us to pray, not my will, Father, but may thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is to say, as the Catechism puts it so pointedly, that Christ teaches us to pray, Father, grant that we and all men may renounce our own will and without any back talk obey thy will, which alone is good, so that everyone may perform the duties of his office and calling as willingly and as faithfully as do the angels in heaven. In other words, then, we are called to look above into God's heavens and to see there our example, and we are to learn from them how we are to conduct ourselves in this coming year if we are to expect God's blessing. And our text helps us to capture the example. We read that in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah was given a vision, and he saw the Lord. He saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and his robes filled the temple. And then we read the words of our text. Above the throne stood seraphim, each one at six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And remember with me now that we have to do here with the holy angels who do the will of the Lord perfectly. And in this vision, they are given us as an example for our own service of the Lord. And, and, and already now we can draw some preliminary conclusions. We heard already that if we expect God's blessing upon us in 2024, then it will be required of us to do the will of the Lord. And if we then ask, what is the will of the Lord? Then the answer is that everyone may perform the duties of their calling as willingly and as faithfully as do the angels in heaven. Capture that concept with me. God sets his holy angels God sets his holy angels before us and he commands of us that we look to them and imitate them in our worship and in our service of God. In other words, that when we serve him willingly, cheerfully, and obediently as do the angels, then we too can wish each other and expect for ourselves and for each other a blessed new year. And that, in essence, is the plain teaching of Scripture. People of God, you have often heard the phrase, no pain, no gain, meaning that, that, that most benefit is achieved by way of self-denial and self-sacrifice, and, and so too for God's blessing. If we are not willing, if we are not willing to deny ourselves and sacrifice ourselves in the service of the Lord, we cannot expect God's blessing, for he will not give it. And to that end, to help us to know how we are to serve him, Scripture points us to these, these angels in heaven given as our example. First of all, then, let's attempt to interpret the imagery of the text. The first words give us no difficulty. We read, with two wings they covered their faces. We understand that. We understand that immediately. We are given to know that even these holy angels who, who stand in the presence of God's holy majesty day and night, even they are not able to bear the radiant majesty of God Almighty. That's what Timothy tells us as well when he writes that God dwells in an unapproachable light which no man has seen or can see. You remember the story of Moses. God presented only his back to him and we then read that the glory of the Lord was reflected in the radiance of Moses' face. His face shone having stood in the presence of a holy God. Apparently then what is true for man is also true for the angels. 
All creatures then are, are to cover their faces in the presence of God, for no created being can look into the radiance of God. What Isaiah and we along with him are given to understand in this vision, first of all, is that all men are to humbly and reverently capture that great gulf, if you will, that great divide, if you will, between a holy, almighty, majestic, and an awesome God and fallen, sinful men and women. And people go, I fear that especially in our day, even within the Church of Christ, so much of that great distinction between creature and creator has been lost. And it's good for us to be reminded here for a moment that we cannot even stand in his radiance, let alone look into his face. Today, many people would put God and man almost on an equal plane. We often meet people who speak with God or about God so flippantly, irreverently, that, that we sense immediately that they have not understood that necessary awe and reverence that must be maintained by men and women when they come into the presence of a thrice holy God. People go out for your own edification. Read once some of the prayers of men of God and of, of, of an earlier generation. Read some of the prayers of men like the reformers and, and those who led the great awakening in America centuries ago. And you can't help but be struck even by the so obvious difference between those prayers and the ones we hear today. Those men knew. They knew what it was to stand in the presence of an almighty, awesome, majestic, thrice holy God. They knew the great divide between creature and creator. And people go, I fear that we today have lost so much of that necessary holy fear when we go to God, when we go to God in prayer. And here now in the text, we are taught that the, the, humiliate, the humility demonstrated by the angels must remind us of our obligation to tenaciously maintain that great distinction between man and God. That, first of all, has taught us in this vision. And we need to understand this well. The angels are holy and they are sinless. The angels who share God's heavens are not fallen, sinful creatures. If then, if then in their sinless and their perfect condition, if then it is still necessary for them to cover their faces in the worship of God, how much more so then must that not be true for all fallen men and women like ourselves who are still polluted with the sin of this earth? If it is truly your desire, people of God, if it is truly your desire to experience the blessing of the Lord in 2024, then make it a priority for you in this coming year to demonstrate that holy reverence in your worship of God. Recapture the necessary distinction between a holy, holy, holy God and sinful, fallen men and women. I have been in the presence, and I'm sure you have too, in the presence of so many people who were, who were about to lead us in prayer, and they went to God in prayer, and they spoke so <clears throat> casually, even so flippantly, as if they were conversing with a friend. And my dear people of God, gathered here with me today, God is indeed your friend in a restricted sense, and in Jesus Christ, he's even your father, but he is not your buddy, and you may not take the liberty to address him as such. Just as the holy angels, we too, we must learn to cover our faces 
in the presence of the thrice Holy One of Israel. And then we read, with two wings they cover their feet. And different commentators have explained that mystery differently. Some have suggested that with the covering of the feet, the angels demonstrate the corrupt condition of the earth as consequence of sin, and, and that some of the impurity could perhaps be carried by them into God's holy heavens on their feet, and, and therefore they cover their feet. But that explanation really is not satisfactory. You see, we know that the seraphim, these angels were seraphim, we know that the seraphim were holy angels appointed to serve God in his holy temple in heaven. And so there was no relationship or connection between heaven and earth in the life of the seraphim. And so that explanation simply will not do. Other commentators suggest that they covered their feet for the same reason they covered their faces. With the first set of wings, they demonstrate that they were unable to gaze upon the majesty of God. And now with the second pair of wings, they demonstrate in their posture their unworthiness to even stand before this holy God. And the imagery given here is again the great distinction between creature and creator. When we now put all of these elements together, put these pieces together, that of covering their faces from his radiant glory and covering their feet as symbolic of his majestic holiness, then it becomes easy for us to understand why in the very next verse of our text we hear them crying out, Holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then yet a third element needs to be considered. With one pair of wings, they covered their eyes, yes. With one pair, they covered their feet, yes. And with the third pair, they flew. And the imagery that we want to capture here is that they were created with the ability and the capacity to serve God at his command. That's what the author, the writer to the Hebrews refers to when he writes that angels are ministering spirits to minister to those who inherit salvation. Interpreting the text symbolically, then, we must see these wings as the God-given instruments qualifying these angels to administer the will of the Lord immediately, unhampered by distance or location. They do the Lord's bidding speedily, as it were, with angels' wings, no distance or places beyond their reach. As to precisely how that happens, we're again not told, and neither is it necessary for us to know. What is necessary for us to know is that men and angels, men and angels, were created with the sole purpose to serve God, and they were created with the ability to do so. People got reading all of this in context now, then the pieces begin to fall into place for us. When we read on in our text, we see that having seen the vision, Isaiah immediately feels himself inadequate. He is humbled to despair because of his own uncleanness in the presence of this holy God and his ministering spirits. Think of what was said earlier. Do you think that Isaiah would have taken the liberty there to call out and say, hey, wait a minute, God, wait a minute, God, I just want to talk to you for a minute? No. Oh. That sounds sometimes like one of our prayers, but the inability of a created and fallen man to stand in the presence of a thrice holy God that was immediately understood by Isaiah and it terrified him. When Isaiah saw who and what God was and when he remembers who and what he is, 
he falls on his knees, buries his face in his hands and cries out, Woe is me! Woe is me! I am undone! I am unclean! And then an amazing thing. We see the seraphim ministering unto one who will inherit, inherit salvation. That was their purpose, remember? And now here we're given to see that. We read that one of the seraphim, using his God-given wings, flies with a burning coal gathered from the altar of God, and he touches the mouth of Isaiah with it. And he informs him that his iniquity is taken away and his sin is forgiven. But as we continue to read and as we consider the context, we learn that Isaiah was here being qualified to the office of prophet. Isaiah was being qualified and equipped for a task that would be oh so difficult for him. Isaiah was called upon to prophesy to his people that God would lay waste to their cities. Isaiah was called to preach that God would severely punish his own people for their unfaithfulness. Isaiah was called by God to tell Israel that God would devastate them, that God would lead them into captivity because of their constant unfaithfulness. You see, Isaiah lived in a time of spiritual apostasy in Israel. Israel had wandered far from God, and God was about to pass judgment on his own people. God was going to lead the people into captivity at the hands of the Babylonians, and Isaiah was called to alert them to that. It would not be easy. Put yourself in his position. Imagine that God would tell you that he's sending you to witness to your friends, your family, that God will destroy them because of their unfaithfulness. Could you do that? But we hear Isaiah's response, send me, Lord, send me, Lord. How could that be? Putting it all together now, we begin to understand. Using the holy angels, God qualified Isaiah to prophesy things that he on his own could never dare to say. God prepares his prophet enlisting him in his service to that end and God sends the holy angels to prepare him and now being strengthened for his calling Isaiah was qualified and determined to willingly, cheerfully and faithfully do the will of the Lord. Isaiah, having been prepared by these ministering spirits of God, was now qualified to preach of great contrasts. He would tell of the impending curse and judgment that was sure to come upon unfaithful Israel. But he would also tell of that holy shoot that would come from the stump of Jesse, who would be a source of eternal blessing for the faithful. My dear precious people of God, it's an amazing story. But the Holy Spirit gives it to us in Scripture for a reason. It was never the Spirit's intent to give us this amazing imagery just so that we could marvel at it and receive it for information. No. Having understood the vision, we now need to bring it home to ourselves. In the context of a New Year's Day service, we now need to see this vision as our divine example in other words, as we wish each other a blessed new year, if we truly desire and expect God's blessing in the coming year, then we are to capture and imitate the example given us by the angels. Meaning then, first of all, that we imitate their posture in the worship of God. For the angels, the worship of God was their all-consuming motivation. 
so it must be also for us in 2024. Isaiah understood that, and initially it devastated him. People thought Isaiah saw these holy angels, and he knew that it was his obligation to imitate them. But that created great dissonance in Isaiah's heart. Isaiah was confronted with a great dilemma here. Follow this with me. The psalmist asked the question, who may stand in God's holy place? And then we hear there the answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. But who has clean hands and a pure heart? Obviously not Isaiah. For you read that when he has seen God upon his throne, he is immediately aware of his own uncleanliness. In the presence of this thrice holy God, Isaiah is instantly and acutely aware of his own pollution. And we hear him bursting out into an agonizing cry, Woe is me! Woe is me! And what we hear in those words is a piercing confession of his own sinful unworthiness. Isaiah cries out a confession of his, of his sin. Woe is me, I am undone. It was a terrifying conclusion for him, and yet it was also true about him. And in God's grace, he was able to see and to understand his own unworthiness, his own sinfulness before the face of God, first of all. My dear precious saints of God gathered with me here this morning, how hard it is for sinful men and women to accept that biblical definition of unclean men and women in the presence of God. Oh, how reluctant we are. And when I point a finger at you, I'm pointing three back at myself. But how reluctant we are, even within the church, how reluctant we are to confess our own unworthiness and how quick we are to point to our goodness. That is tragic, but not surprising. After all, our culture has worked so hard to emphasize the need of men and women to have a healthy self-esteem. And even many in the church have been seduced by that philosophy. But, but Isaiah saw that much differently. Woe is me. Isaiah stands in the presence of God and cries out, Woe is me. I am undone. Why would he say that? What was it now that caused this prophet of God to fall on his face and to cry out in self-condemnation? The answer follows immediately in our text. Woe is me, I am but, what? I am but a man. That's it. Isaiah was a man, and more yet he knew himself to be a man of Adam's fallen race. He had heard and he had seen the angels worshiping God. In fact, we read that he had heard the angels worship with such intensity that the very thresholds of heaven shook and it reverberated. We cannot even imagine the marvelous majesty of what Isaiah saw. And worse yet, he sees how the holy angels worship and he knows that he was called to imitate that heavenly example. But, but, but I am but a man. I am a man of unclean lips. The holy angels worship God with clean lips and pure hearts, but Isaiah could not do that because he was but a man. <coughs> His lips were unclean, meaning that he himself, was a, as a fallen man, was unclean. He was unfit for the service of God. He could not even stand in the presence of God. Oh, woe is me, for I am undone. What Isaiah must do what he was commanded to do was praise God as did the angels, the seraphs. But, but, but because of his own corrupt nature, he was unable. 
Those who have sinful natures cannot praise God as they ought. And that was Isaiah's horrible but correct conclusion. That was his dilemma. In order to offer worship acceptable to God, there must first of all be a cleansing of the heart. It was necessary for the prophet to first of all to be made conscious of his sin and his unworthiness before he could praise God as he ought. And now God in grace shows Isaiah the vision of the angels in the worship of God. And Isaiah falls on his knees in despair when he sees his own inability to imitate them as he was commanded. My dear precious people of God, what was true of the prophet is true for all men. The text continues, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Not only was Isaiah able to, unable to praise God, but the same was true of the entire nation he represents. What was true of Isaiah then is true of all men. Because of sin, men and women are unable, were unable to praise and to worship God. In fact, they cannot even stand in his holy presence unless, 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 unless they have clean hands and pure hearts. My dear saints of God, as you read the scriptures, as you read this portion of scriptures, you capture the vision of Isaiah. And as you begin to understand what it all means, you can almost Feel the agony of Isaiah. There he is standing in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. He sees the angels worshiping God. He sees the angels worshiping God so perfectly, so intention, so, so, so intensely that the very foundations of heavens were shaking. And he knows that God requires of him the same kind of worship as was being offered by the angels. But he knows also that as a fallen sinful creature, as a man, as a member of Adam's fallen race, he was unable to do so. And he cries out in anguish, Woe is me. I stand condemned. There is no hope for me, for I cannot live up to the standards that God requires of me. <coughs> but now follow closely we see again that amazing thing and that significance of it may not be missed by us. The angel takes that live coal from the altar of God and touches the lips of the prophet with it. And that action symbolized the fact that the necessary propitiation had been made. His sin had been forgiven. In other words, that which stood in the way of Isaiah's service for the Lord, namely his sin, that obstacle had been removed in Jesus Christ. Isaiah had been a sinful man along with all others with him in the human race and he needed the forgiveness that only God could provide and now symbolically he was reminded of the atoning sacrifice of the lamb that would come to take away the sin of the world. And my dear precious people, a lot of you have been following closely with me as we've interpreted all of this imagery, then the pieces of this amazing puzzle have begun to fall into place for you. We saw the posture of the angels in covering their faces in worship. We saw the angels covering their feet in humility. Finally, we saw the angels qualified for the service of God. And then we saw the angels doing the Lord's bidding with such intensity that the very threshold of heaven trembled and 
that holy service of the angels is now to be our example as we stand on the threshold of this coming year. First of all, we are to be motivated in all that we do by an all-consuming desire to worship a holy God. We are to clearly understand the great distinction between a holy creator and a sinful creature, and we are to humbly confess the sin that still cleaves to us. And in that humility, we will be blessed by God to hear the message given to Isaiah to prophesy, for it is still the very same message for 2024. It is a message of contrasts. We will hear every day again of God's judgment upon sin, but we hear also of the root of Jesse that brought forth the Son of God to propitiate for sin. Then finally, we too, in God's grace, will know ourselves to be qualified and equipped for service in 2024 because we know that God has cleansed our lips and our hearts. That brings us back to what we heard earlier from our confession, that everyone may discharge the duties of their calling and office as willingly and as faithfully as do the holy angels in heaven. My dear, precious, precious people of God, what a blessed, blessed privilege for the Church of God to welcome another year. What a blessed privilege it was for us to be able to gather together this day. Oh, I know that our task and our calling is no different on January 1st than it was on December the 31st, but once again, opportunity was granted to us and taken by us this morning to be reminded of our calling in the world and to be assured from the word of God of our qualifications for the work that the Lord has given us. The Lord sends us from here this morning, obliging us to a new obedience in his service in 2024. Commit yourself now to fulfilling your calling in whatever office he has placed you, be that as father, mother, husband, wife, elder, deacon, a congregation of Christ, wherever the Lord places you, whatever the circumstances may be, fulfill your office and calling as willingly, as faithfully, as obediently, as cheerfully as do the holy angels in heaven. If that is our objective and posture for the coming year, and it must be so, then we have every right to wish each other a blessed 2024. Not only do we have the right to make that wish for each other, much more we have every right to expect God's blessing upon ourselves, our families, our friends, and our congregation. If that obedient service is our objective in this coming year, then God's blessing is upon his people. Congregation, enter this year full of conviction and confidence. Have no fear of the future, no matter how uncertain it might seem to be. Remember the word of God as we find it in Romans. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, if we live in 24, or if we die in 2024, we are belong to and remain with the Lord. 
At God's command, the holy seraphim has taken a burning coal from the altar of God. He's put it to the lips of each of us, cleansing us from the unrighteousness, from all unrighteousness. And therefore, being washed in the blood of the Lamb, we are prepared for eternity, to be sure. But we're also qualified to serve him while still here below. And we are commanded to do so throughout this coming year, as long as God gives life and grace and breath. Pray with me then that our response for this coming year will imitate that of Isaiah of our text. Isaiah, having received the assurance of forgiveness, cries out what? Send me, Lord. Send me. Send even me, Lord. He's immediately ready to commit himself wholeheartedly without reservation in the service of God, even when that service would press from him tremendous personal cost and perhaps humiliation and ridicule from his own people. Send me, Lord, send me. May it be so for each of us in this coming year. May each of us be found to be doing the will of the Lord in this coming year as perfectly, as willingly, as obediently, and, and as cheerfully as do the angels in heaven. Pray with me that in 2024 we may be found to be willing instruments in God's hand to do his will on earth, to advance his kingdom and to do his will on earth as perfectly as do the angels in heaven. For only then can we expect God's blessing on this coming year. Shall we pray? Father, another year is dawning. Dear Father, let it be, in working or in waiting, another year with Thee. Another year is dawning, dear Father, let it be, on earth or else in heaven, another year for Thee.